know, community building is, is really simple. Like, you know, have a reason, you know, have a, a place. Uh, if you do it in person, have a place in time. And then have code that's good enough to show that it could work, but bad enough that everyone wants to make it work better. <laughs> Couchbase is a SQL-friendly, multi-cloud-to-edge, NoSQL database architected on top of an open-source foundation. Join them at connect.online, their two-day virtual technical conference for developers that has over 60 deep-dive sessions where you can learn about Couchbase, hone your application development skills, and network with peers and tech experts. Ready to develop your path? Register for Connect today and learn more at couchbase.com slash path. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am Ben Popper, along with my lovely co-hosts, Paul and Sarah. Good morning, y'all. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Paul. Hello. Hi, 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 hi. So we have a great guest on with us today, Chris Anderson, formerly editor at Wired and now CEO of 3DR, a very cool drone company. And today we're going to talk a little bit about community and code, which I think is something pretty close to Stack Overflow's heart. Those are two things we focus on a lot. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be hanging with you again in new context. Yes. Chris and I met at South by Southwest 2013 when he was getting into drones and I was getting into drones. And eventually that led me to leave journalism for communications at DJI. And that led me over here to Stack Overflow for content and communication. So both formerly media now tech folks. I just came up with an extremely weak Chris Anderson joke, <laughs> which I'd like to workshop here. Can we, can we do it? Yeah, let's hear it. How is our guest like an Irish wolfhound? Oh. oh, he has a long tail. Hey, very good. Ah, That's right. For people who don't know, <laughs> uh, a foundational text of our digital world, yeah. which was it simply called The Long Tail? Yes, it's a, it was an, uh, started as an article that I wrote in Wired and then turned into a book. And it is now, I'm pleased to say, a term of art in the industry. It is. I used it earlier today in a meeting. I was just like, well, you know, this is our long tail content. And the idea being that there's stuff sticks around on the internet and continues to add value. It's, it's one of those uh, concepts that it was initially received as being both, you know, head slappingly obvious and entirely wrong. <laughs> and, you know, any good idea should, should be polarizing in that respect. So this is different than long tail. Or maybe not. Like, I'm curious to sort of draw those parts of your world together. What are you doing today? Like, what is this new thing? Well, we won't have a hard time connecting it all to long tail because basically uh, the long tail is the spirit appendage of the internet. But, you know, the, no the notion that, you know, democratizing technology, making technology accessible to more people, being more inclusive about who gets in, it, you know, is obviously the story of of podcasts. It's the story of, you know, YouTube. It's the story of the internet. And it's the story of the communities that I've created, both DIY drones on, on autonomous vehicle uh, aircraft and DIY robocars about autonomous cars. So my day job is I run 3DR, which is a uh, drone company that has gone from parts and, and, and technology for developers and hobbyists to uh, commercial products to consumer products and then, you know, commercial products. And now we basically run a process for the FAA to try to make these things legal. And, and, and you know, unbelievably, I've, I've gone from kind of pirate to participant, you know, sort of, you know, coming up with, the, you know, things that's, you know, aircraft that weren't regulated and couldn't be regulated to basically writing the regulations for, for the future of aircraft. So that's, that's my day job. I have a drone question. So I really, I really love open source drones. I played with them a lot. I always tell people... 
that are learning to code, especially kids between the age of like 12 and 17 to get their hands on a drone because there's just something that they love about it. One time me and some high schoolers coded a whole bunch of drones to dance to the Knight Rider theme song, which as you... Okay, okay. There's a video on it on the internet somewhere. But I always wonder what is the difference between, you know, like the open, like the parrot drone and what our government uses. Like I imagine they're more sturdy, but besides that, what are you looking at when you're looking at something that is approved by the FAA? Yeah. So uh, just a little bit of history on this. So uh, while I was the editor of Wired, I started a community um, about drones, but it's largely to, for the exact same reason, Sarah, that you said, which is that I've got five kids trying to get them interested in science and technology. I thought robots might be cool. They didn't think robots were that cool because they've seen Transformers. And, you know, <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere close to that. And so I thought maybe flying robots would be cooler. And we just kind of hacked it together, you know, something together with Lego Mindstorms on the on the dining room table. And it kind of almost worked. I mean, it flew, but you know, not fully autonomously. And you know, they still didn't think that was cool, but I thought it was amazing and started the community and we started writing the code. And you know, it was all open source, of course. And of course, in those days, this is 2007, drones were military industrial stuff. You know, you didn't have the parrots. I, I think actually you would, you would very, you know, like 2009 was the first parrot uh, drone, the AR drone, but that wasn't open source. There was an API, which you were using, but the, the core code wasn't open source. So we just decided to build it on like Arduino and all that sort of thing and really make it open source. And today you have two kinds of drones to answer your question on the military side. You have the ones that fly really high and long. And those would be things like predators and reapers and global hawks, et cetera. And then you have the small ones that are so-called tactical drones that the that the military would use. And those are those um, just in the last um, few months, the the army has settled on our drones. I mean, our, our code, rather. I started a, a formal consortium called Drone Code which has a code base called PX4. That is the standard for small military drones is based on our code, based on our communications protocol, based on our ground station. So, and you know, what do they, what do they look like? They look kind of like a parrot drone. They're a little bit more robust, but they're open source. You know, they have an open source um, interface and, you know, they're not as cheap as a parrot drone, but they're cost a few thousand dollars. And so, yeah, we won. But that's a pretty amazing story that you're telling that you went from, yeah, trying to get your kids interested in, you know, science and technology and then, a, you know, forum online just for hobbyists and enthusiasts to hang out. And then you all decided to create code together. And now that has come to the point where it's being used by our military. It is. I mean, obviously, I didn't do like anything other than start the community and, you know, wrote the first terrible code. And, you know, this is a, so my general sense is that, you know, community building is is really simple, like, you know, have a reason you know, have a, a place, uh, if you do it in person, have a place in time, and then have code that's good enough to be, to show that it could work, but bad enough that everyone wants to make it work better. <laughs> um, so basically, basically a, a, a super broken MVP where anybody who's good at coding, the code will say, well, that's, that was a stupid way to implement it. Let me just fix it for you. And that, that flywheel fixing then turns into really good code. Right. This is a complicated part of, of open source and open standards, the way you're talking about it, because like you've got on one hand, drone enthusiasts who I'm assuming are like classic tech nerds, you know, we're going to do a lot of things, we're going to change the world, perhaps slightly anarchist roots. And then the Department of Defense on the other side saying, great, systems and protocols for drones, we really need those. And you've got a community in the middle. How did that play out? That sounds complicated. Well, yeah. I mean, so the good news is that, you know, robotics in general is super multidisciplinary. So there's like mechanics and electrical and, and computer science and physics and all this kind of stuff. We also had a lot of people who weren't actually that interested in the code, but just wanted to use the drone, just wanted a drone that mm. they could 
they, they could use. So you had sort of like, you know, the radio control hobbyists on one side, and then you had the robotics people on the other side, and everybody was ignorant about something. You know, some people would say, well, look, I'm, you know, I don't know a lot about, about mechanical elements, but I'm really good at circuit board design. Other people would say, I know a lot about circuit board design, but nothing about motors, or I don't know anything about batteries, or I don't know anything about mechanical vibrations, or I don't know anything about how to fly. And so, you know, the beauty of this is that everybody was coming to it both with their own expertise and incredible ignorance about everything else. So everybody could learn. It wasn't like you had some people who knew everything and who sort of intimidated everybody else. In a sense, nobody knew anything in this domain. And so we were all learning together. So to, how did we get to the military stuff? Well, it took about 15 years. <laughs> you know, that, that it was classic, classic Gandhi, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you've won. <laughs> then the military standardizes <laughs> yeah. the drone protocol. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what that, he meant. That's definitely the fourth thing Gandhi said. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right. No, I mean, I, the fundamental thing you're saying, right, is whoever shows up to do the work has the impact. Yeah. And, you know, initially we, we did not set out to do military. Matter of fact, we explicitly, because, because drones were already military things, we spent a lot of time mm -hmm. sort of demilitarizing them. You know, our whole point was that, was that, you know, people thought of drones as being weapons and we wanted to change the meaning of the word and make, and, you know, and I think successfully today people think of drones as things, you know, like toys you buy in Walmart or, or cameras or things like that. So that was job one. And then job two was to you know, when you're trying to win open source developers over, one of the early concerns is that it would be weaponized, that their code would be used, you know, for, for ill. And so in, initially, we actually had some, some pretty strict rules about no weaponizing drones. Today, it doesn't really matter what our rules are because it's open source code. People can do what they want. You know, what happened is that, you know, um, uh, we very successfully built drones. Then DJI, you know, built even better drones, frankly. And it turns out people just would rather have something that just works than something that's open and hackable, um, or at least most people um, would. So, you know, commercially, we found that, you know, the open source drones were always going to be a minority share, a little bit like, you know, like like Linux versus, versus Windows in, in the early days. Mm -hmm. And it was only really when the military started freaking out about China and banned DJI drones and, you know, the Huawei, TikTok sort of, you know, backlash sure. that they went looking for an alternative. It turns out that open source is super trustworthy because it's transparent and open and it worked really well, et cetera. So weirdly, the military became the biggest sort of driver. When I say military, I also mean the government and non-military uses and all that. But, you know, basically sure. go government use of open source drones became the biggest sort of validator of our approach and may, in fact, uh, drive demand for these things across the board um, over the next decade. Really for a decade plus, I mean, the, the Department of Defense has published excellent guidelines on like working with and dealing with open source code, like some of the best you can find. Like it's it's actually open source and, and defense have, have really been aligned for a long, long time. It's kind of an awkward conversation, but it's a it's an important one. Like they contribute, there's stuff on GitHub, like it's a big part of our world. Paul, well, is this at all similar to the dystopian future that you imagined when you were saying the Department of Defense has excellent guidelines and open source code? Well, you know, frankly, actually, it is because even in the early days, like the Richard Stallman days of, you know, GNU getting founded, he was really clear. And I mean, you know, I don't think you could find someone for all the other qualities that happened around the Free Software Foundation, like who was more explicitly anti-imperialist, anti lots of things. But uh, the Free Software Foundation always was really explicit that it was about open code, not about sort of who the customer was and didn't try to control that. And this conversation emerges from time to time. For me, it's just sort of like, this is a pattern that happens as things succeed in open source, they get more and more users. And, you know, it's funny because you're talking about Linux and now we have Microsoft subsystem for Linux inside of Windows. Like we're, we're in a world that is absolutely unimaginable. But if you make 
essentially free tools that people can use and distribute, they're going to find their niche and, and they're going to use them. So it's not all drones for you all day anymore. You're you're onto other autonomous things, right? Well, well, yeah. So we we sort of solved what I solved the drone issue, which is to say that they now you know the code works really well. It's super reliable now. Now there's a huge community now that's adding to it and you know enhancing autonomy and different cameras and payloads and internet radios and things like that. But you know from a kind of a raw technology perspective, you know the the low hanging fruit of like how do I make these things work is is kind of done. So intellectually, mm-hmm. I went for the next. You know my day job is sort of you know incorporating that into mainstream you know use. My night job, my my hobby is basically doing the same thing with cars, self-driving cars. And, you know, once again, put the letters DIY in front. So it's DIY robocars. And, you know, once again, wanted to make it, you know, cheap, easy, fun, accessible. And the thing about cars, just like in drones, we made them small and open mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and cheap. With cars, we made them small, open and cheap. So think of like a, take like an RC car, like about a foot, two feet long, you know, take out the RC, throw in a Raspberry Pi, camera, you know, maybe a Jetson Nano, um, something like that, and then have them race autonomously. What's the Jetson Nano? Is that the NVIDIA? Yeah, yeah, the NVIDIA. It's, okay, it's yeah. sort of the Raspberry Pi form factor, but it's NVIDIA, uh, you know, it's CUDA cores, et cetera, and they have an Xavier, and they're, you know, coming out with other ones. So basically... So that's your, your machine learning Raspberry Pi. It's the machine learning Raspberry Pi, exactly. So, so you know, the, you would think that cars would be easier than drones because cars are a 2D problem and drones are a 3D problem, but they're actually harder for two reasons. Um, one is... The drones have one huge advantage outside, which is GPS. They know where they are. So the cars are, you know, we're typically racing indoors. They they have to, you know, there's no GPS indoors. They have to use cameras to figure out, you know, where the track is, where the other cars are. And that means computer vision, of course, but also deep learning to, and then, you know, deep learning in real time, which is, you know, you know 60 frames a second on a sub hundred dollar board, which is, you know, non-trivial. So that's that's become sort of really interesting from a technical perspective. And so that p- brings us into computer vision, deep learning, AI, and the kind of the cutting edge of cloud and uh, embedded compute, which is fun again. I like that this is your your night job. Everybody needs a in night job. Now, so in, in 2035, National Highway Safety Transportation will come to you and say, can we borrow that and put it in all the driverless cars? It's open, right? And it's safe? I'm so okay, ready for it. that. <laughs> it it is it is and and, and interestingly um, you know during you know we were doing all these races in person um, and it's super fun we had them every month now we are doing them virtually in a simulator um, because of COVID and so actually uh, we have a, a practice run um, if, if you go to DIYRobocars.com and you'll see a list to our meetups and uh, we now run it all simulator so a Unity based simulator once again now people can participate without a car you know it's just it's all simulated they just run the code on their on their local laptop they can sit they can participate from around the world many of our teams are from asia you know and and it's it's simply a matter of um, of logging onto the server your car shows up in the in the simulator the you know the simulator then generates synthetic camera frames if you will um, and your local code then interprets those and turns them back into sort of simulated commands to the you know to the throttle and the steering and you're racing head to head with other cars, algorithm versus algorithm, free, cheap, fun. Anybody can do it. Um, one of our, I think uh, we have winners that were 12 years old and we have inter- winners that are in their 70s. Oh my God, this looks fun. This <laughs> yeah, looks I know. Fun that, there hell. goes my weekend and next three years. Um, all right. So get someone started. What do I do? 
So, um, so if you want to do it virtually, it's really simple. So, uh, the DRI Robocars is the community, and then there's uh, several projects within them. You know, all the big tech companies have one. Like Nvidia has something called Jet Racer and Jetbot. Google's done this with uh, the Google I/O uh, conference. But the one I would recommend is that you uh, start with something called Donkey Car. Donkey Car is a um, neural networks, um, so it's end-to-end, end-to-end neural network. Can run on Raspberry Pi or a Jetson Nano. Without giving away too much, I would suggest that you wait for news from NVIDIA about even cheaper, better the Jetsons. The Jetson Nano is $99, but they're really pushing hard on this edge compute thing. So We're living in NVIDIA's world right we now. Really it's, are. it's really something to get adjusted to. But it'll work on a Raspberry Pi, you know, three or four. Um, and um, you basically, you, you just follow the tutorials, but you can you can actually buy the cars, uh, you know, already made. Um, Amazon, by the way, has one as well called uh, Deep Racer. Um, you can buy it on, you know, Amazon, you know, they built into the AWS stack. So this is kind of a thing. You know, I think if you want to spend clicking on Amazon, buying stuff, you know, Deep Racer would be fine. If you want to actually build it properly, which I think is more fun, you go to donkeycar.com. Um, it'll show you just you get a standard RC car from Amazon. You, you stick a, you know, a Raspberry Pi in there. And then you just run the code. And what you're going to be doing is what's called behavioral cloning. Let's say you, you draw a track. On your in your backyard, we use tape. You know, you can use chalk, whatever. And then you just manually drive around the track, steering it yourself. You know, two or three times. Meanwhile, it's recording both the, the, what the camera sees and also your inputs. So now you have a correlation between you know here's here's what the camera sees, here's what how it should drive. You send it up to the cloud, and then it builds and then it trains against that, and then you and then download a model, which is an inference layer, and then you run that model on your car. Now it drives itself. There's a my brain just kind of goes like, oh well, that's probably the future of programming. Like you know, we're gonna we're gonna drive the little car around, and then it will know. Do you see that pattern, or am I just being too futuristic? Uh, uh, too futuristic. Um, a couple problems. First of all, you know, it now knows that track, but doesn't know every track, any track, different mm, lighting okay, conditions, good. and the answer is no. So there are other techniques that would allow you to do it better. So I talked earlier about the simulator. So right now it's kind of, you know, you drive around the track, it takes a little, you now have one training set, you set up the cloud, you get back, you know, a model. But, you know, what you'd probably like to do is lots of variations of tracks and lighting, et cetera. And so the great thing about the simulator is that you can now run thousands and thousands of variations. You can try different tracks, different lighting, you know, different uh, competing cars, et cetera. Now you get a much more robust training set. And now you can use something called reinforcement learning. And so with reinforcement learning, so before we were talking about behavioral cloning, which is you show it what it should do. With reinforcement learning, you give it some criteria like stay on the track. You know, we'll reward you for staying on the track. If you go off the track, we'll punish you. That allows you to have a much more robust model, which could be used on maybe any track. It's only possible to train in a simulator because it's so time-consuming. You run thousands of iterations. But now we have a simulator. So we're seeing reinforcement learning cars are now becoming the, the winners in most of our races. Yeah, that's great. One thing I've observed, and I don't know, so I've gotten involved in FIRST Robotics a bit, and one thing I've observed about hardware programming and just these open source hardware environments is it really attracts a group of people that is very unlike what you see often in software. It, it ends up being a pretty diverse crowd, and you know, you don't, you're not walking into long men's room line at an open source conference. Do you see that in your groups as well? Totally. I, I know exactly what you're saying. And, you know, I used to uh, go to the first uh, events as well. So the great thing about physical programming and physical, you know, objects like, like robots is that, 
you know, there's something for everybody. There's the mechanical bits for people who are really into the cars. You find you can do that. There's the electric, you know, electronics bits for people who are really into the, you know, the sensors and boards. And there's the computer science bits. And then actually in first robotics, as you know, there's also the notion of teams and competition. But some of the first robotics elements is actually are actually manually done. So you have the notion of drivers. And, uh, you know, it, from a gender perspective, they tend to be quite balanced. Um, you know, typically what you get is a division of labor. You know, somebody's going to, the nerd's going to do the programming. The kid who, like, loves burning solder is going to do the electronics. The ones who are good with screwdrivers do the mechanics. And, you know, the ones who are, like, you know, super athlete competing types, maybe will be the driver. And uh, it is super collaborative and, um, and fun. Yeah, the first time I went and I saw all the different kids excited about programming, I had to, like, go in the bathroom and cry. <laughs> <laughs> these, oh. these poor kids <laughs> like this judge lady's here she's just crying in the bathroom <laughs> she'll be out soon <laughs> it's great but yeah it's really it's really inspiring to see that stuff and i always get really excited for this next generation seeing that you were crying because you were inspired or because you saw a lifetime of disappointment ahead of Brett? <laughs> a little bit of both it was a mix <laughs> i was gonna say well, one of the one of the challenges we had at first and you may find that as well is that you know there's the the manual element and then there's the autonomous element and the autonomous element requires sensors and programming etc it turns out it was, it was really hard to get the kids to really do autonomy right so like what they would do is they would program their like robot to like go forward 10 seconds turn right 10 seconds a lot of this kind of you know a pre-baked behavior rather than you know go forward until your sensor detects a wall and then you know you know interpret that and and uh, so we found that the true autonomy, the, ki the kids, and I speak probably for my own kids, are pretty lazy. Yeah. And if you give them a choice between sort of, you know, pre-baking some procedure versus actually, you know, really pulling sensors and writing PIDs, they'll, they'll go for the pre-baking. Did, did you find that as well? Yeah, I did. That's funny that you say that. I saw a lot of, because uh, for those of you who don't know, in, in first competitions, usually the team has maybe like 10 seconds or X number of seconds in the beginning to do an autonomous section then and it moves to them controlling their devices. And yeah, I, I saw a lot of phoning it in. I saw a lot of robots that like move five steps forward and then to the left and then grabbed at nothing. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think kids are just incredibly good at traversing a graph in their head and going like, I want to do nothing and get the most fun in result, right? And it's just, you get to tell them like, no, this is a wonderful lesson for you. You're going to have to do something that's kind of excruciating, complicated over and over again. <laughs> this comes full circle because DJI that we were talking about as the drone maker has now gotten into um, autonomous cars as well. They have something called um, RoboMaster, I think, a RoboMaster competition. It's huge in China. And they now have this vehicle, small, you know, kind of robocar sized one. And um, they have two versions. One of them has a gun, like literally shoots these like little pellets on top. And, and you battle when they have to autonomously sort of seek out the other tanks, if you will, and fire these pellets at them. And then the other one has this like arm, this gripper thing. And um, it's just like, you know, it's like, like Sarah, you were saying with the, the parrots, now you have, you know, DJI is the same thing. It's got an SDK. It's got a mobile app. You can program it. It's actually huge in China right now. It's like basically bigger than first. And um, it's a little expensive, I think, the, you know, the vehicle, but it's got, you know, computer vision, deep learning, you know, the works, just like a drone with wheels. And also these Omni wheels, so it can go sideways, forward, you know, any direction. It's super cool. Play this out a little bit for us. So you get involved in drones and, you know, it's the mid 2000s. And now there's government standardization efforts and drones are, are really kind of part of culture. You can buy them in, in Target. And now we're early days on autonomous, self-driving, fun cars. Like, where do you think this is headed? Is it the same path? Is this going to stay kind of like a learning, playing thing? Like, where in your brain are we going to go? 
you know, ca- cars are they carry people. I mean, we generally try to stay away from carrying people. So the drones don't carry people. So <laughs> no one's ever been killed. It's safe because no one's flying on board. You um, can sleep at night as a result. It's really good. I- exactly. Um, you know, cars almost by definition, you know, should be, it should be carrying people. And you know, the reason we did this was, I mean, like the question is when you've got like a, you know, a Waymo and a Tesla, what, what are we possibly doing here that could be adding, you know, adding to the corpus of knowledge out there? And the answer is that the history of car innovation has always been through racing. You know, hmm. you know, Le Mans, Grand, you know, Grand Prix, you know, Formula, you know, Formula One, all that stuff until we got to self-driving cars. And, you know, by and large, these car companies are not racing and they're not racing autonomously. And they're not doing it for a number of reasons. Number one, they um, it'd be embarrassing to crash. You know, they're trying not to crash. Uh, these cars are expensive. And uh, they're, they're basically focusing on safety rather than performance. And we thought, well, you know, why don't we focus on performance rather than safety? Because we have really small cars and crashing is part of the fun. So we believe that we're actually innovating in an area that the self-driving cars are not, which is super agile, nimble, you know, aggressive driving as opposed to safe and conservative driving. And as a result, we may find techniques to be safe by being nimble. In other words, you know, when you're about to crash, there's two ways around it. You can just slam on the brakes or you can sort of, you know, deftly dodge and get around it as you would in a racing context. And that's that's kind of what we're focused on. And may, that may have utility for, for full-size cars in the future. The important thing, though, is that we not build companies out of this one. Instead, what we build is people. And, you know, so if you want to become a self-driving car engineer, you can either go to Carnegie Mellon or Stanford and, you know, get a PhD, or you can, you know, go to donkeycar.com, start the simulator, yeah. you know, and, and you're going to learn. And so I think what we're doing is we're growing a much bigger, you know, population of people who have something to contribute to this industry and may ultimately get jobs in this industry. So, Chris, usually at the end of the episode, I read out a lifeboat badge, which is somebody who came in and answered a question that had a negative score on Stack Overflow, got it up to a positive score, and uh, helped to spread some knowledge. But I figured this week we'll do something a little special. So I just put DIY drones into the Stack Exchange search, and I came up with a couple of good ones here. There's electrical engineering. I want to make a UAV, been inspired by the guys at DIY Drones. There's an Arduino thing here. Arduino serial timeout after several writes, but the most important one is from our gardening and landscaping stack exchange, how to properly seed bomb a particular area with drones. So if you're interested in planting from the air, we've got some uh, some ideas here on our gardening stack exchange. By the way, it is possible that there's a lot of tree replanting happening right now with drones. Seed bombs are a thing. Yeah, seed bombs are a thing. Reforestation. All right. I'm Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me at Ben Popper on Twitter. I'm Sarah Chips, a director of community here at Stack Overflow. You can find me at Sarah Joe on GitHub. And check out my friend Jeff's Kickstarter. It's bit.ly.com forward slash books Kickstarter. I'm Paul Ford, friend of Stack Overflow. You can find me at my company, postlight.com. Check us out. Uh, and I'm Chris Anderson. This has been a lot of fun. The best way to follow us, uh, DIY Robocars, is uh, DIYRobocars.com or go straight to donkeycar.com and build your own. Very cool. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs>